Mandy, please schedule more episodes where I can throw hard programming questions at Opti for one hour. <laughs> Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application's performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. This episode is sponsored by Code Climate. Over 1,000 organizations trust Code Climate to help improve quality and security in their Ruby apps. Get 50% off your first three months for being a Rogues listener by starting a free trial this week. Go to rubyrogues.com slash codeclimate. This episode is sponsored by SendGrid, the leader in transactional email and email deliverability. SendGrid helps eliminate the cost and complexity of owning and maintaining your own email infrastructure by handling ISP monitoring, DKIM, SPF, feedback loops, white labeling, link customization, and more. If you'd rather focus on your business than on scaling your email infrastructure, then visit www.sendgrid.com. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 128 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel we have Avdi Grimm. Hello and uh, since Josh helped me achieve enlightenment, I will now be known as Baba Ram Dig Bim. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying that throughout this entire episode. Uh, Josh Susser. (laughs) Hi, from San Francisco. And Avdi, it's about time I was getting tired of calling you your worship. (laughs) <laughs> David Brady My code has an inferiority complex Can we do something about that? Katrina Owen Hello from Denver James Edward Gray I got nothing I'm Charles Maxwood <laughs> from devchat.tv uh, Quick reminder, go check out goingroguevideo.com for my video on how I went freelance and uh, we also have a special guest this week and that's Avdi Grimm Baba Ramdeg Vim <laughs> <laughs> Can I just call you Baba? Or is, or is it Mr. Vim? I am for him correcting us for the entire episode. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm going to call him uh, uh, Baba Dig Vim. <laughs> yeah, so, um, just just to, to, to let everybody in on the joke, um, Josh pointed out that uh, that Rom Dig Vim is an anagram of my name. And uh, so apparently I have... According to my name, I have secret Vim tendencies. <laughs> What's always, in a name? We always knew that. We knew before you knew, Opti. Really. <laughs> <laughs> That's always the case. Oh, yeah. no. This is going to be one of those <laughs> so, episodes, isn't so, it? <laughs> yeah. So, so, so what makes you think you could write a book? Yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> it was a dumb idea. <laughs> this is... Is this the? I think this is the only the second one we've talked about. Do you have any idea how many words go into a book? <laughs> Lots, right? Lots. That's crazy. Way yeah, to quantify that, guys. <laughs> the bigger question is how many words got taken out of this book? Yeah, good question. Probably not enough. Is it, so, confident Ruby, why did you write this book? What is it? What's what's the point of this book, Afti? <sighs> the point of this book is is joy it's about coding joy it's about the it's about the joy that found in programming ruby when i when i first came to the language the way that things could be said really just straightforwardly in a in a way that was almost like pseudocode and it's about rediscovering that joy even in the midst of 
you know, not just toy problems, but really complex code. Uh, and, and doing that through patterns and idioms that emphasize telling code that tells a very coherent story rather than code that um, spends a lot of its time dealing with prominently dealing with edge cases. Uh, the history of this goes back pretty far. Back when I, back in the, the first couple, year or two that I had a, uh, an actual Ruby job, I, um, I was working with a code base that was a bit of a mess. Actually, it was a huge mess. Uh, I, I, I'm not, I, it's, I think the, the first, well, some of the first code bases I worked on are still some of the worst code bases I've worked, I've worked on in Ruby. And I, I started sort of taking some notes and writing some blog, blog posts based on the, uh, the anti-patterns that I was seeing in the code. Um, it, it, and a lot of them, I noticed that a trend that a lot of the stuff that was just making it painful to work through this code was that the code was kind of unconfident like it would constantly second guess itself it would there was you know if this variable is set and if this variable is a hash and if this hash has that has you know key foo <laughs> and so on and uh yeah just i i started writing about this and and uh then i wrote a talk about it and then eventually i wrote a book about it so that's the long answer so what's next after the book the, the uh, interpretive dance. <laughs> okay. Once that's I thought it was up, a I, bug tour. I, a screenplay. Well, I was going to say, Peter Jackson should be free in another year. There you go, <laughs> right? Well, you, you need to have a trilogy before Jackson will do a movie. Oh, Jackson will turn this into a trilogy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it just gets changed into one, right? Yeah. yeah he's going to spend the entire first, meth first movie just defining methods. So, Avi... <laughs> I've uh, been going back through Confident Ruby because I actually uh, read it kind of a long time ago. And I was like, ah, I kind of make sure this is in my head. And um, this is something I noticed, uh, just kind of this weird thing. Um, I'm really actually trying to learn JavaScript finally. And I mean, like, actually learn it. Like, how does it work and stuff? Uh, JavaScript, what is it? Um, but as I'm doing that, I find myself doing a huge amount of defensive programming. Like, I, I guess that's the opposite of confident Ruby, defensive Ruby, maybe. Paranoid Ruby. Paranoid yeah, Ruby, paranoid. yeah. <laughs> a good term. That guy's going to steal timid my cocaine. Is a, is a term that I sometimes use. What'd you say? Say it again. Oh, tim timid is, a, is, a, is also a word I sometimes use. Nice. Sensitive. Sensitive Ruby. Sensitive. I have a problem with being sensitive. I think sensitive is okay. I um I find myself doing more of that as I as I'm working with JavaScript, and I can't decide if it's a JavaScriptism. Like I'm scared to death of JavaScript ever automatically converting anything for me. So <laughs> I try to make sure I convert everything, you know, so that I never right. let it get to that. I can't decide if it's that or if it's just that I'm. Um, uh, you know, it, it's because I'm so new that I don't know what to trust there, you know, and so that's what makes me do it or whatever. But I find that I have that problem a lot more in JavaScript than I do in Ruby for some reason. Yeah, I think some languages that try to be like try to be more helpful wind up being less helpful. I mean, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, and it's it's something that I, I honestly feel like I should add a bit of, about this to the book is that. Uh, Ruby, in contrast to most of the other scripting languages and just other languages that it's that came before it, really does very little automatic conversion. 
very, very little. Um, you, it was kind of considered for a long time in a lot of languages, it was kind of considered standard that you would have all these, all these different automatic conversions where, you know, I have a string, but I use it as if, you know, in a context where I would normally expect a number. So the language is going to, you know, do what I mean and convert that string into an integer. You know, you see this in Perl, you see this in JavaScript, you see it, actually, you see it in C++, which is kind of weird. Uh, there are all these implicit co uh, coercions and things like that. And it seems like a good idea. It seems like a super big convenience. And, uh, but Ruby really went against the flow by saying that, no, if you want to, you know, if that's string, if you want a string to become an integer, you've got to say, uh, dot two I, or you've got to wrap the, uh, the in integer conversion function around it. And I think that was probably a choice that was driven by the messes that are often caused by all these implicit conversions. Yeah, and I think there was also a really good uh, model for uh, what Ruby adopted, which was how Smalltalk did things. Right. You know, you know Smalltalk had a very similar. Uh, it's like they had the the uh, you know string type coercions that we see in Ruby all over the place, but they also had the genericity arithmetic conversion model. Right. And got adopted so and i think it's it's very con i think it's very consistent with ruby's you know sort of hardcore ob object-oriented approach because i guess the the underlying feeling in these other languages is the language knows a whole lot about all of its built-in types and it's going to you know try to do convenient things for you based on its understanding of the built-in types whereas the 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 ruby point of view is everything's just an object that you send messages to and we're never going to make assumptions about what those objects are or what you want them to become. You just need to send messages to them. Yeah, well, it's dealing with things in terms of protocols. Yeah. And, yeah. It, it, the thing that I loved in your discussion of all this was that you really clearly made the distinction between the implicit and explicit type conversion methods. And I, I thought that was the like the most succinct description of that I've seen and I learned a lot reading that section. I'm really glad to hear that because that was an explicit goal. Um, it wasn't a goal when I started, first started writing the book. I, I didn't go into it thinking I'm going to write the definitive guide to, to conversions in Ruby, but it started to really become a theme. Um, and I think that's because you know the a lot of what goes into writing confident code is knowing what you have um, you know, no, being sure by the time you get into the meat of a method that the objects you have to work with, not necessarily that they're the right types, but they support the right protocols. They are the right shape, so to speak. And so one of the major ways of do doing that is performing various conversions on them before they, you get into the meat of the method. And so, you know, we have all these conversion methods like, you know, the 2i, two 2i. Two, two, versus 2int and 2array versus 2a. And so I figured if we're going to talk about conversions, we should really we should really talk about it in depth. And there's really, I, I couldn't find any book out there that had a really good, complete coverage of all the different nuances of conversion in Ruby. I, th I actually have a theory about why that's the, uh, the killer section of this book. I agree with Josh. It's about... Uh, the section I really loved is like input uh, in your in your book uh, and dealing with input. So that's the conversion methods, but it's also like, you know, guard clauses and uh, bouncers, I think was this other one you kind of described. And and um, I, I, too, thought that was the amazing section. And I have a theory on it. You kind of divide things in the book um, 
from like collecting input, performing work, handling failure, and delivering output, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, so uh, handling failure was kind of covered by Exceptional Ruby, and you actually say that uh, at one point. Uh, you cover it a little but but most of that's there. And then, uh, you know, doing the work, you can't really help us with that much, right? And, uh, right. and um, output, uh, there again, you know, it, it, there may be some patterns there, but it's not as much. Uh, but how to Output is most, mostly about helping, making it easier for the, the methods that consume your output to also be confident. Right, exactly, right. And then, but the input, it, it's a big topic, right? Like um, data is always coming into the methods, you know, and then you have to decide, okay, I've got this, but I need this. You know, what are the good paths to get there? So, yeah, yeah I, I agree with Josh, and that's where this book really shines, I think. So we've been seeing, uh, like, if you look at um, Erlang or Elixir or Haskell, there's a bunch of these languages that use uh, pattern matching mm -hmm. to do um, what in Ruby we would think of as method lookup. Right. You know, you know, where, you know, in Ruby, you send a message to an object, it looks up the method and then runs the method. Uh, and there, some of these languages have these patterns where you can say, oh, if, you know, instead of just picking a method based on the class of the receiving object, uh, I'm going to pick it based on patterns of, oh, did you pass me nil or did you pass me a string or did you pass me an integer or did you pass me two integers or, or what have you. And right. that's one way that you can remove conditionals from your code is by doing all these patterns. And, that, and you're not actually taking conditionals out of the execution of the software at some level. You're pushing them you're, into the language. Yeah, the language is is special casing them for you in efficient ways that right. it can that it can reason about, and I I looked at the a lot of the input processing stuff that you were looking at the collecting input section, and which really dominates the book. It's like two thirds yeah. of the book. I think it's it's the heart and soul of the book. Yeah, the um, and I looked at that and. I mean, this book is is sort of a you know like three hundred pages about how to remove if statements from your from your program. <laughs> In a sense, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's like oh you know it, you know pretty. Much I like to think of it as removing the extraneous if statements. Yeah, yeah, but, but it, I mean, it's very much you know it, you know I think pretty much every pattern in here is you know oh you can get rid of an if statement if you turn your code around and do it like this, and it seemed like that was somewhat reminiscent of what the pattern matching languages do, where they take stuff where you have conditionals embedded in the body of your method or your function and pull that up to someplace where um, it's it's easier to deal with rather than in the guts of your method. Right. Uh, right. And the functional, the functional way of doing that is is by pattern matching against types and against the shapes of, of structures. I think the OO way of doing that is to sort of turn things around and to push it into the polymorphism. So, so you decrease the one way of doing it, you know, is you decrease the number of if statements by increasing the number of types you have. Mm -hmm. Not the only way though. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You demonstrated a few tricks on that. So, <laughs> so you, you do this thing in the book uh, that is my new favorite thing. And uh, you do it in the introduction for the very first time, which is, um, you take this chunk of code, uh, just this realistic chunk of code. I can't remember where you got it. Uh, metric foo, I think, actually. 
and you go through with a highlighter and you highlight the lines that are about input and the lines that are about work and the lines that are about failure. Um, and this particular example doesn't have output, but uh, I've seen you do that too. And uh, like the accompanying video and stuff, but it's so eye opening because you're like, look, you're dealing with input up here at the top, like you should be. Then you do half the method, then you're dealing with input again, you know, and just seeing those colors stacked on top of each other, really just for some reason, that just is a super big aha moment for me about how these things are in the wrong order and intermixed and stuff like that. I love that trick. Yeah. When I was doing the talk, that was what everyone remembered. Yeah. Yeah, it, uh, Avdi, we, we've been talking about stuff in the book, and uh, I know there's a book club, so we expect listeners to have read the book. But can you just say a little bit about this stuff so that if people haven't read the whole book, they can they can you mean follow like the, along better. The yeah, highlighting like, stuff. Well, no, just like the breaking down of the of the method into okay. input, work, output, failure. Sure. Yeah. So the the kind of the epiphany, such as it was, uh, that resulted in in the talk and uh and the way the book is organized was i w- i was looking at these these uh you know functions in these code bases or methods and code bases that i that felt really unconfident to me and i felt like i was having a really hard time wading through was, they were very hard to understand and and as a result of being hard to understand they were hard to change and i was trying to think what how can i break down i mean what is the sort of real issue here like how can i how can I explain why my mind, you know, looks at this and just rebels? And I realized that um, eventually I realized that any part of a method, just about any part of a method can be broke down and broken down into one of four parts. Uh, it's, it's accomplishing one of four roles, sometimes more than one at a time. The, the roles of collecting input, performing work, delivering results, and handling failure. Any given line is, it's doing one of those. And where the, where methods become confusing, at least for me, is when those are all mixed together. And so I, I did this kind of visual aid in the talk where I would take a method that it was really long and had all these things mixed together. And I would just, like, uh, like James was saying, I would just mark it up in different colors, four different colors, showing which parts were, were hand collecting input, which parts were actually doing the work of the method, which parts were delivering results, and which parts were dealing with failure, and, and showing that, you know, it would just go back and forth. You know, we're, we're collecting a little bit of input, and then we're doing a little bit of work on it, and then, oh, there's this failure case that we have to account for, so there's going to be like a, a three-line diversion where there's a begin, rescue, or, you know, five-line begin, rescue, end and showing how to deal with that failure. And then we're going to go back to doing some work, but then there's some more input we need to collect that we didn't bother to collect earlier. And when I say collecting input, I sometimes mean going and finding input, like pulling something out of arguments or pulling it out of the database or, you know, descending through a chain of methods. But I also sometimes mean getting input into the the form that we need. So sometimes that involves conversions as well. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, I feel like this, this mixture of parts of a mes- method um, is is what confuses things, and I a lot of the a lot of what I'm going through in this book is sort of is sorting these out. So a method starts out by by collecting input, like there's a stanza where it's collecting input, and by the end of that stanza, there's going to be no more code in the method that deals with collecting input. Everything you need is ready in a variable, and then it moves on to performing work and so on. 
do you think those parts still belong in the method or should they be extracted out? Uh, like, is it a violation of the composed method pattern? It really depends on the method. It depends on where the context and, you know, how big those parts are. I yeah. mean, certainly if, if you have a stands, you have two different methods that have this, uh, virtually the same stanza of collecting input, maybe they're doing the same conversions or something on the input, then that's probably something that deserves to be extracted out. A lot of the stuff that I show here, especially when it comes to collecting input, is really intended to be, to go at the borderlands of your code. Mm -hmm. So you have, you know, either, either code that's, kind of right at the top level of your application or code that's at the top level, you know, in the, the API layer of your library where other folks, code. Be, yeah. Yeah, other folks are going to be calling into your library. And, and these are the methods that are receiving the, the inputs from, from external code. Uh, a lot of this stuff is sort of guard the borders. I don't really believe in, you know, what, one of the things I'm trying to do away with is repeating the same checks about data at every level. So I, I really hate seeing code bases where, you know, they're, they're passing around these values and every single method from the top to the bottom is checking to see if it's nil first before doing anything with it. No, just mm -hmm. check once and deal with it there and be done. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I love the guard the borders um, uh, metaphor that you, that you use there. And, and that's, that's very often how I write my code. I think that's good. I think that's one of the, one of the things about object-oriented programming that's really an effective trick is that you create an object and then in the initializer you, you validate all of the inputs to the object state and then you can just rely on them from there on out. And I'll, I'll build classes where I do just that. You know, it sets up the object and then you can make sure that all of the, all the, uh, variable, instance variables are set up right and then you never need to check them again. And I, I, I pass state around in objects using instance variables pretty often because it's mm -hmm. so easy for me to do things that way. And I have very, I have these very um, small bottlenecks that control how things get written so that I can always be assured that the values will be in the same state. Yeah. And that's so much, that seems so much easier to me than like passing around, you know, around a value through, you know, four or five levels of, of method to, yeah, you know, and having to validate them all as they go. And it's, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's just like one of the things where the functional way of doing things, I think, is a little at odds with how you do things in an object world. Yeah. I think there's also a paradigm shift here, at least popping for me, which is that I tend to look like in the models directory of a Rails app, and I tend to think of all of these objects as somebody could just grab one of these and instantiate it. And I mean, that's what my spec suite does. It just grabs it and instantiates it. So obviously I need to guard my inputs. But if I'm guarding all my inputs up in the controller, then uh, A, the proper behavior for a nil violation down in the model should be to explode and throw a no method error on nil class. And B, this is the, the epiphany for me, maybe I need to reconsider the fact that maybe not all of my objects should be always, you know, considered to be living on the border, right? They, is, there, is there some way to say these classes are on the border and these classes are kind of in the protected area where their inputs are already checked? You know, it's funny. I, I, um, I almost wish Ruby had Java's um, package. Mm -hmm. uh, level of visibility. We have protected, which is pretty much useless, very yeah. close to useless. Um, and I would gladly trade it for package because package, you know, all, all this protection is just advisory in Ruby, but package would be an advi advisory level to say, 
you know, if you tried to instantiate one of these these objects outside of the module that it's in, that it's defined in, Ruby would say, "Are you sure?" Because mm-hmm. I think that's somebody's private and you know internal class. I'm pretty yeah. sure we could write that in uh, pure Ruby. We could use caller to get the location of where it was instantiated. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, we could, and we could reduce the our our performance to a crawl. Right. Yeah. Couldn't we create a refinement to make that work? Hey, 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 hey! Speaking of language level support, um, I, I'm cu- I'm curious that you know you have this breakdown of you know input work result failure, and mm. Ruby has explicit uh, support for the failure section of a ma- of a method, and you talk yes. about that you know as you know getting away from the with the bre, yeah, begin rescue end, yeah, bre. And, yeah, get, yeah, getting getting away from the the bre and getting to you know the top level rescue clause on a method definition. So so Ruby has support for that in the language. Yes. I'm I'm curious are there other pieces of this breakdown that you think would be useful to have some more language support for? Um there's always I mean there's always the thought of let's add a little bit more to method declarations to enable us to be a little bit more declarative about what types of object we can accept. But it's so easy there to just start going completely against the grain of Ruby because, you know, Ruby is not a manifestly typed language. It is not the sort of language where we declare types everywhere. So I'm not really sure how to do that in a way that would that would maintain the very dynamic nature. Yeah. Do, oh, okay, so so maybe a different way of looking at this is how do you think the like the Ruby two keyword arguments would change how you talk about some of these patterns. I, I, I know that, that it like does, it does change it. Like um, in the past, we used to say you need to put everything in a hash and call fetch every time you yeah. get it out of there, right? And the keyword arguments are making that better. Now, I, I don't think they got all the way there until Ruby two one, which is two one, yeah, release candidate yeah. now. Yeah, required uh, keyword arguments, right? Really because help. you couldn't do you couldn't do one that was required but had no default. Um, but now you can in Ruby two one. I'll be honest. I don't know if I've written a single serious program with keyword arguments. So. I feel like I need to dig into that some more, and it'd be nice to to release an update to the book that that talked about keyword arguments a bit. This this I think the the target version for this book was all one nine three. I might have talked a little bit about some two two point over uh, features. Okay. Well, what I've found in converting some code to keyword arguments uh, is that it, it generally the language level support is helping because um, before you had to declare, you know, the variable that took the hash. And then you had, you know, if you were pulling two or three things out of it, you had those two or three lines, which Avdi calls collecting input, right? Where you're, okay, fetch this, fetch this, fetch this, here's the default, you know? Um, And now that just is part of the method signature, basically. So, but again, Two one is a necessary step, getting to the point where you can make Ruby actually throw an exception if that thing is missing. You know. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's really really helpful. And uh, just to, just to be clear to listeners, uh, when we say fetch, we're specifically talking about the dot fetch method on hashes. So using those in preference to the the square bracket subscript operator. So you have another cool thing 
in this book, you it's not just a book, right? You gave us the Confident Ruby book, and then you included a, I think it was about 30 minute video of mm-hmm. you going into an actual code base, it was discourse, and going in and applying these techniques uh, to discourse. So like literally you would pause the video and then like highlight the, the code in the various colors like I was talking about earlier. And then let's see if we can, you know, clean this up. And then you would play around with it a bit and, uh, and do that. And then also you gave us a, a, a side book on uh, a library you built on the null object pattern. We can talk about that in a bit. But the video, especially, one thing I noticed in there is that you have far better restraint than I do. <laughs> <laughs> so you go in, you go and you find a method and you're like, this is right for refactoring. And it's like, yeah. And then you do the one thing that makes like 80 to 90% of the difference. Um, and, and it looks dramatically better. But I would obsess over it. Then I would have to do the other 20 things that make up the rest of the difference. But <laughs> But you stopped there, and I, well, that I was that know was how you do that. <laughs> that was really it was to serve the um, it was to serve the the goals of the video, and the goals of the video were to specifically to show refactorings derived from the book, refactorings that were about making the code more confident. And I, you know, give me a, a chunk of code, and and I could probably refactor it, you know infinitely you know long past the point of it making any difference um but uh but for the video i really just wanted to show stuff that was that was from the book stuff that was about confidence so i i did have to really restrain myself i have to say that it was it was that was one nice thing about the book is it did or the video is it did give me the opportunity to sort of live demonstrate the marking up methods in terms of of the different parts of a method that process is kind of it's actually kind of painful coming up with one of those pictures for the book, I, I wanted to do more of them for the book, but it was just, it's, it's just this really tedious process. But the, the video process that I have uh, makes it relatively easy. I was going to ask if you were, if there was a way to, I don't know, mark these from a gem or something where it could actually uh, give you that kind of readout or output where you could work I've through I've been thinking that. about that for years. I mean, not so much the... Um, not so much the like code analysis part of it. I'm sure you could do the code analysis part of it, although it strikes me as really, really painful trying to categorize code using analysis as input gathering, et cetera. I have thought about what it would take to like do something that goes one better on like the pigmentize tool where you could say, okay, from this line and, and column to this line and column, highlight code in pink and then like output that in PD, you know, in various image for formats. And it's, it's an interesting problem, but I think it's not an easy one. So James, for the refactoring problem, the trick is to realize that the first one does solves 80% and the next one solves 80% and the ne- of the remaining 20 <laughs> and the next one solves 80% of the remaining, you know, 4%. And so what I have learned is that I'll do 80% and then I get up and I go wash my hands and then I do 80% and I go wash my hands and I do 80%. And I have a sign that says, if you just got back from washing your hands, stop refactoring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it though, right? I mean, like the one thing he does in the video, it's like, ah, yeah, that's better, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, yeah, but we could do this thing. But then if you compare the thing I want to do with the thing he actually did, you know, it's like a 1% nothing change. Yeah. You know? it's, it's so funny, but... 
uh, I really liked the video. I thought it was great um, as far as just getting to see it in action kind of helps put the whole thing together. Um, you had some really cool examples in there. The anonymous user, which is kind of the, I can't remember if it's special case or null object, sorry. Special case. Uh, special case, yeah. Uh, yeah, that yeah one was, no, null object is a special case of special case. Special case, right. Yes. right. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and then you did one with uh, dynamic dispatch on a, an after save thing. There were these different after saves handling like three different things. And you were so ruthlessly practical in that one, which is what made it so good. You were like, we could blow this up into an entire tree of objects and select the right object and then call a method on it. But in this case, it just doesn't buy you anything, you know, and, and I thought that was really cool. You talked about the different options and how you could go too far with it and, and yeah. stuff. So uh, let's just do this simple thing that, that cleans up the code and, and pretty much handles this case. Just I think that's the that's one of those things that's the hardest to learn, you know, and it's it's hard to teach. It's it's one of those things that you just you keep coding and you start to get a feel for, you know, when a solution is just right and when a solution is overkill. Um, but that's it is one of the reasons that I, I like the video format so much. And obviously I like it because I do Ruby Tapas for a living. But I just I love the video format because I feel like for whatever reason, it really helps me just talk about when things are pragmatic versus when things are overkill. And uh, I also really like doing doing like recorded pair programming sessions like I, I did with Josh and that's up on YouTube because it just captures that that thinking about this is, you know, this is too much or this is just right that you don't see, you know, when you're just reading a pattern book, it's easy to look at that and think, okay, should I just apply this everywhere or, you know, when do I apply this versus when it is, when is it too much? Avdi, I didn't get to watch the video. Um, I'll, I'm, I'm going to make sure I do that real soon now, though, because it sounds cool. Uh, you didn't talk in the book about um, how to apply these patterns in doing something like TDD. And I'm, I don't know if you do that in the video or not. But, I mean, do you want to take a moment to talk now about, like, how does looking at things this way and, and the patterns in the book, how, how do you address all that using a TDD process? Well... I think I, I feel like I wrote a lot of the patterns in the form of refactoring. So a lot of them start with code A and then refactor it to use a pattern and end up with code B. And so in as much as they are refactorings, you can they they slot into the TDD process like any other refactoring. You know, you 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 write a test, you make the test pass, and then you refactor based on whether there's there's duplication in the code or something else that's making you feel funny about the code. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there's that. I mean, some of this stuff, like when I'm, I'm writing the borders of my code, some of these checks I'll throw in without actually TDDing the, the check. Like, you know, if, if an argument, a dumb example, an argument should never, ever, ever be nil. I may well throw in uh, an assertion for that in the code without writing a test that says, and this, this method should assert that, that this argument is never nil. You know, if it's something, if it's something that I need to, I, I want my client coders to be, to be immediately notified about, I'll just put it in there. Um, it's not the kind of thing that I, that I uh, generally TDD. You can't go like way too far down that rabbit hole, right? If you test every single guard clause, you know, or whatever. I mean, I know it's, 
supposed to all be tested, you know, and, and stuff, but then it can get to the point where, you know, you're writing six tests per method you put in, you know, it's getting right. a little crazy. And is it really valuable to document four of those tests, you know, these are, this is guaranteed right, to fail. You know, is it really valuable to document, you know, four of those six guard clauses that, you know, if you screw this up this way, it's guaranteed to fail. Right. Uh, I, I do want to make it clear that I don't, like I said before, I don't litter my code with these redundant checks everywhere. It's it's really a borders issue. And it's it's a borders issue. It's about it's about making sure things don't, you know, nils and things like that don't get too deep into the code. And it's about being kind to your callers and letting them know as soon as there's an issue rather than letting them know the sort of tertiary result, you know, somewhere deep in the code, you get a no method error on nil. And it turns out that that was actually the tertiary result of a, of, you know, three nils back in mm -hmm. a completely different part of the code. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, just to finish up the TDD stuff, the testing stuff that I'm curious if there's um, like particular testing patterns you find yourself using more building software this way. I mean, do you focus more on testing how objects get created and initialized? Do you uh, do you mock things more or less? That's a good question. I'm not sure that, that this stuff puts particular pressure on the way I test. I mean, I have a way that I like to test, and I never hadn't really thought about whether it was influenced one way or the other by this style of coding. I mean, in general, more and more I like to test based on the idea of roles, you know, I, I want an object to play a particular role. And so I'm going to name that object after its role. And I'm going to write a test. Often I'll, I'll write the test about what the object should do before the, the class exists or even the name for the class exists. And I'll be like, like, okay, now what would be a good thing to actually play this role? But that's kind of standard, you know, test first, I guess. Mm-hmm. I had one question about the code samples in the book. It's like some, mm -hmm. sometimes they felt um, long. <laughs> there were, there, there's some, there's some uh, you know, it's like I turned the page and, hey, this page is entirely a code sample. I tried and, to avoid that, but I, there are a few. Yeah, I, I, I figured you're trying to avoid it, but, but there, there were ones where it was just like, okay, I'm putting a lot of stuff on this page. And it took a little work to, to uh, get through some of those. I apologize for that. It, 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 <laughs> okay, well, I'll forgive you. But the, but I, I'm I'm just it's like you're so creative sometimes in the in the um you know code samples that you provide, and that's uh, definitely entertaining. But uh, it's like sometimes when you get one of these big long samples, I have to I have to uh, like deal with like why is it so long here? What's going on here? And why couldn't this be broken down more? And you know it wasn't always obvious to me about that. So just, you know, it's just something worth, worth uh, mentioning because it, it kept coming up for me a lot. Okay. That's good feedback. Um, and it's, it's, it's good to know. Cause I, I, um, I generally dislike the, the books with the, with really long code examples. So try to avoid it, but it's sometimes I I, kind of a cool thing of the video is that it gave you a chance to tackle real code. You know? Yeah. And so then it, it kind of bridges the gap between, you know, in books, we always use like the dumbest example that you'll never, ever see in the real world. Right. Yeah. And yeah, then, I, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the perpetual conundrum of, of writing about this stuff is that if you want to just show a technique, if you want to highlight a technique, you can't surround it with a ton of, of extraneous code. 
um, or or the technique will get lost in the code. So you strip it down, you strip it down, you strip it down until you've got something that'll just highlight the technique, and you go through.